Welcome to another Co-op Conversations podcast episode. Each episode features different guests living in housing cooperatives in various parts of the world. Through these conversations, you'll learn more about life in a housing cooperative for children, teenagers, parents, and seniors. In one episode, we take a slightly different approach and we talk to Brenda Torpy from Burlington, Vermont, who is a longtime champion of the community land trust model, a land ownership model that some housing co-ops also use. I'm Julie LaPalm, Secretary General of Cooperative Housing International, or CHI. I deliver CHI's work program, which includes communications, education, and knowledge sharing, governance, and collaborations. Cooperative Housing International is one of the sectoral organizations of the International Cooperative Alliance, which is the global apex body representing all cooperatives. CHI raises awareness about cooperative housing by promoting its successes on a global level. We also facilitate networking opportunities via knowledge sharing events. If you go to our first podcast episode, we explain housing cooperatives. If you want to learn more about the different types of housing cooperatives or find out more about the work we do, please head over to our website at housinginternational.coop. So we have with us today, Brel Hutton Opaleke, who is Director of Development for NASCO, which is the North American Students for Cooperation a network of student co-ops across the U.S. and Canada that is educating and organizing an emerging generation of cooperators. Brell also lives in a housing co-op in Madison, Wisconsin, with their partner, uh, Wyla, and their young baby, Isra. So welcome, Brell, and thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Julie. So can you tell me a little bit about your co-op that, that you live in? It's a little different than what most people understand a housing co-op to be. So you live in a shared house with other people where there's a kitchen, living room, and some bedrooms, correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So can you set the scene for our listeners and, and tell them a little bit more about how, how your housing co-op is, is set up? Yeah, so we have uh, eight rooms um, in a shared building. And we have a shared kitchen uh, and uh, living spaces, as well as a garden, a greenhouse, and several other uh, amenities available in the building. The house has, uh, in, those, in those rooms, they're usually like double rooms or two rooms uh, attached to each other. Most of them are kind of uh, suites. Um, that's the one that we have right now. Um, and so uh, we have kind of uh, like one room within our room section that serves as a uh, as like a living room and one that serves as our bedroom. The spaces range in size between single rooms and those like larger suites. Um, but uh, we, you know, we, have, we all have kind of then uh, shared access to the shared amenities. And how many are you living in the house? Uh, right now we're uh, nine adults and one child uh, who you can hear in the background. Okay. So you're in, uh, in Wisconsin. So what, what part of or in Madison. So, what uh, like what what part of town are you in? Uh, what kind of amenities are are near the the housing co-op? Yeah, so we're in kind of a mostly single-family zoned uh, housing area uh, on the east side of Madison, Atwood, Starkweather, Yahara neighborhood, and we have uh, nearby uh, you know elementary school and middle school within walking distance. You know, we have a small park. 
Um, we have the old brick gardens very near to us. Um, and just down the street, we have a, a larger new uh, cooperative housing development. We're one independent co-op of uh, about 23 other cooperative organizations in Madison. So is it this new co-op that's going up, is it affiliated with, with your organization? Uh, no, it's not affiliated with us. It's uh, uh, just uh, has just started last year and uh, really is like mostly off the ground and is operating now. Okay. Are there many housing co-ops in, in Madison? Yeah, there are, uh, I believe there are 23 uh, housing cooperative organizations. Um, and then one of them has 12 buildings currently. Oh, that's quite large. Then. So there's a, there's a lot of like housing co-ops uh, in Madison. Nice. So most people are, are used to a, a nuclear family setup. So can you elaborate on on how you're raising a, a baby in, in a, a shared household. How how is that uh, being handled? Um, well, it's been it's been really helpful. Um, I uh, to to have a lot of other people um, who who are able to support us uh, while this happens. We definitely had the goal of sharing space with Azraya initially and like continue to do so. So it's really nice to have not just. Uh, Lila and I being the the only adults that Azraya uh, gets a chance to meet, they will spend you know pretty significant time with a lot of the other adults in the house, uh, and have gotten a chance to uh, to really get to know them as other safe individuals that they uh, can grow up next to. And is this the first time there's a there's a child growing up in your co-op? No, um, this uh, this co-op's been pretty child friendly since its since its inception. We had uh, one member who had just moved out uh, this last month who uh, raised his daughter here and they lived here for 15 years. Uh, and you know, this, this, uh, this was uh, an experience where he was able to you know, have the, the whole uh, gamut from tiny child all the way up to a uh, young uh, woman who's moving out and going to college. We also, just before we moved in, had uh, a couple who had two uh, very young children um, in the space as well. So it's pretty normalized to have children in the co-op and uh, it's been really nice to have the, like the organizational and uh, personal support. So what, what kind of organizational and, and, and personal support are you getting? So the, the personal support has been really nice to have um, just individuals who knew that we were coming in. Um, we, we had uh, Ezra here at the, at the house, they like knew that that was kind of coming um, and planned for that. And uh, we're really open to allowing, like, not just allowing a, a child to be here, but be, they were excited to have a, a little baby in the house. Um, and so we've had uh, other housemates uh, sometimes, like, help us clean up after ourselves in the, in the kitchen when we're, you know, new parents and dealing with all of the things that come along with that. Uh, we've had uh, our housemates you know, hold the baby while we're going to go and do whatever, <laughs> whatever like uh, kind of small things that we would find ourselves that we needed to do. Um, and then uh, kind of more structurally, the, the house has been really considerate in adjusting our, our house meeting times and, uh, and uh, our scheduling uh, to allow for us to be able to put the baby to bed at a reasonable hour, to allow for us to participate like from our room sometimes uh, and, and just kind of like call into the, to the house meeting, even though we're in the same building um, while we're uh, trying to get the baby to go to sleep. Those kinds of things are, are, have been really uh, supportive uh, of making it a, a really welcoming uh, space for us to be able to still engage in. 
So does your does your co-op have any kind of uh, I don't know like policy in place or like any kind of rules on like how many I don't know like like how how do you go about deciding like you know whether someone who is expecting a child or has a child uh, you know like whether there's there's you know space in the co-op or um, you know like just how how is that decision made? So we don't have a policy on that primarily because. Uh, we want to avoid any of the the steering considerations that come with the United States uh, Fair Housing Act. We actually would be uh, prevented from tell like telling a, a family with uh, a child, well, you can get this double room, but not the single room because we've reserved the single room for a single person. Uh, we recognize that it's important to leave to leave it up to the, the the family with children to make the determination as to whether or not the rooms that are available are acceptable to them. So when a member comes into this co-op, if there's an opening, they're eligible for any of the openings and they'll negotiate with, a, with if, there, if there are multiple openings, they'll negotiate with the other people who are uh, also moving in to decide what rooms fit their needs best. But we don't, we don't have a, a hard and fast, uh, like we'll direct a family to one specific unit. And is there a, is there a selection? process when someone wants to move into to the co-op is there an interview how, how do you how do you uh, select people who want to move in yeah we we have uh, an interview process um, in which uh, we we have kind of a written interview that people have and then uh, we have three meetings with a prospective member uh, where the the member uh, also answers some standardized questions during those those meetings but also we explicitly say that part of this is we're going to live with you. We need to be able to informally and formally communicate with you in order for this cooperative to work. Um, are we able to do that? Um, and so that uh, that time that we have with uh, with folks in, in those uh, interviews serves as uh, that space. It also serves as a, a space for the prospective applicant to get a, a sense of who they'd be living with um, and whether or not they feel uh, comfortable communicating formally and informally uh, with us. So that's kind of the process. And then uh, once whoever is in the pool of applicants um, who's applied to have one of the spaces here, once everyone's gone through that, that interview and um, application process, we as the cooperative then decide based on those, those questions and those, uh, those interviews, uh, whether or not we're going to accept a, a member. And we kind of do one more, like kind of one better than the bare minimum where we, where we explicitly state that will tell uh, any applicant why they were decided, uh, like why we accepted them or why we did not accept them, because we we find it you know extremely important to uh, avoid uh, discrimination based on you know any of the protected classes that uh, that are there. Mm -hmm. So what what would, do you have any examples like without pointing at you know anyone in particular of like why you wouldn't accept someone like is it because like they just wouldn't be a good fit or you know like it, does it go deeper than that well we'd be more specific i think than just saying you wouldn't be a good fit because that could be really easily interpreted um as anything well, you know why aren't why are you a good fit you know uh, like uh, tell me more um so we we would really focus on do you demonstrate like a strong commitment to completing the tasks that are required of you as a member um do you bring necessary skills to the co-op that we didn't have before? Were you rude to our members during uh, your uh, informal interview? Like we wanted to be like much more specific in, in those things so that we are 
um, able to give a, an explicit reason that is not discriminatory. Right. Okay. And so let's talk about governance. Is is everyone like is every member involved in the governance, or is there like a a, a board of you know representatives? How how do you do the the governance? So our co-op is really small, right? So we, we're we're nine people. So um, we technically have a separate board uh, in order to be com in compliance with Wisconsin uh, incorporation statutes. Um, we do elect officers. We do have them sit on the board, um, but uh, in our organizing documents, we explicitly delegate all powers and authorities of the board to the uh, the membership of the corporation. Uh, and so the nine members of the house uh, are able to make decisions for the organization. So all members who have uh, a contract with Yahara Cooperative Land Trust, the, um, the co-op that we're in, are, are able to take part in governance. Okay, cool. So how do you distribute the the chores, you know, the cleaning and and the cooking? Does everyone like have a, a specific role to play or do you do, do you have a rota? How, how do you deal with that? So we have uh, some of the like administrative tasks that, that are specifically assigned to individual members, like making sure that we have a budget and that our bills are paid and making sure that um, we're keeping on top of the, the maintenance requirements of the building. But then with uh, cleaning tasks, those are, we have like a list of different tasks and people take them as they are able to. Um, and then we trade off those tasks as people need to. Uh, we just make sure that the, the list is full and has names next to everything um, to make sure that the tasks that we have from the house are covered. And we try to we try to be flexible uh, to recognize people's different abilities and um, time constraints. Um, but we also try to balance uh, that with making sure that everyone is contributing in some way. And so that being really clear and out, out front is, uh, helps to serve some of the accountability. So are there times when, you know, people aren't fulfilling their tasks and, and you have to kind of bring it up or like, you know, how do you deal with, you know, with folks that are maybe not, you know, pulling their weight or, or not doing what they said they were going to do? In the time that I've been here, we've been pretty lucky that everyone has been pretty well committed to um, to doing the tasks that they've uh, that they've taken plus more we do have it uh, we do have a system that we that we implemented in which um, if someone was not doing their um, required uh, work uh, that we would bring it up in a in a house meeting and that it is and if they were to like continue to not do so um, that it would eventually be potentially like grounds for um, removal from the co-op if they were to just completely uh, walk off and not do anything. But we we first and foremost talk with the members and then bring things up in meetings if uh, talking to them is uh, just kind of one-on-one -on -one informally was insufficient. Okay. And how long have you been living there, Will? I've been living in this cooperative since uh, May of uh, last year, but I lived in a uh, quite a few similar co-ops uh, going back quite, uh, quite a few years now. And what made you decide to, to move to this housing co-op? Uh, moved to this housing co-op partially because of the neighborhood, which was, uh, I was living downtown in Madison, which is kind of unfortunately not quite as child-friendly as one would want. It's, uh, it's right, like downtown is right next to the university. And so you get a bunch of uh, uh, students being you know loud and uh, sometimes uh, dangerous for kids. 
the other reason was cost. This uh, this co-op was a little bit cheaper than the co-op I was living in uh, downtown. Um, and the other was uh, like was space and uh, access to space in uh, in the co-op. I have uh, in this co-op, uh, I have a larger uh, individual unit. Uh, so for me to be living here with our child and my partner, makes it a lot easier for me to, uh, to to fit in the space. And I imagine you're you're working from home as well. Is it is everyone working from home and in the co-op or is it a mixture? Yeah, it's a mix. Um, we're mostly working from home, but we have uh, three members who aren't. We've got uh, someone who's working at the public library, a person who's working with the university and a uh, person uh, who is working uh, at a local bike shop. So, you know, there's different, different exposure levels and the, you know, one of them is, you know, in a, in a lab and it's, you know, it's pretty safe. Um, folks are, you know, adhering to all, you know, proper protective equipment expectations and requirements. Our member who's, you know, working at the library, the, the library has put in a lot of uh, pretty significant restrictions on spacing and, and such. And our member who's at the, at the bike shop, it's the same kind of situation. So we we had to set, to implement kind of a, a COVID safety policy uh, in the in the house, uh, and with that came some disclosures from each of us about what our risk factors were, um, like where we were going, and whether or not we were going to be putting people at risk by by engaging in certain activities. And we were pretty clear about setting those guidelines. The cop was pretty clear about doing that when we moved in. And I, I'm really thankful for it. And I'm thankful for us, uh, for our kind of system of checking in on whether or not that system itself is working properly, because that's, that's really helped us to you know, keep, keep it so that no one in the house uh, since they've been here has been exposed and, um, we, and hasn't really put any of us at risk, uh, considering we're all sharing space. So you haven't had any, any COVID scares at all since like a year, really? Well, you said you moved in in May, so not quite a year. Right. Yeah. But but even during that time, um, we we did before we moved in, we had a few people move out because they didn't feel that they were going to be able to comply with the COVID uh, expectations in uh, in the space, which I think is you know it's reasonable. People talked about it. Um, there may have been other reasons as well, but that was definitely a cited a cited reason, and we've stuck to those expectations and that communication uh, since. So yeah, we haven't had any significant COVID scares. If we did, or uh, if we had uh, a member who felt like they were potentially in a risky situation, uh, they would separate themselves from the rest of the house um, and they would kind of quarantine for a few days, which we, uh, we definitely did uh, a couple of times for a couple of folks. And during that time, we would try and support them by making it easier for them to access the spaces uh, that were common um, at times when the rest of us weren't going to be there. Or, you know, we would wear uh, N95 masks in the in the common spaces and just made sure that we were cognizant of our um, our contact. So do you, you do you wear masks on a regular basis when you're in common spaces or just when someone might have been exposed or there was there was some kind of risk? We've worn masks in common spaces as a matter of course um, during COVID. 
I, I will say that's like definitely one difference between uh, co-op living and maybe like living by yourself. So putting on a mask to sit in the living room and talk with folks um, is a little different, but it was it was not a unreasonable hurdle to get over. Uh, and I think has really made sure that things are fine for us, even though we haven't had uh, you know a member come in and 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 expose us all. I think that that's been good practice for us. It's funny. I can see the mask hanging from from the lamp behind you there, and oh yeah, <laughs> like masks have become the the new the new decor in a lot of places. Yeah, you see you see masks hanging from people's rearview mirrors in their cars, and you know just masks everywhere. Yeah, it, it definitely is the case. Yeah, we and I mean we we also noted some some other things too, like we have forced air heating and. We were aware of um, another cooperative in Madison that kind of ran into some issues where um, they had forced air heating and a forced air heating return and blowing the air around may or may not have been a contributing factor to them kind of uh, having a, a, a spreader event in that, at, at that cooperative. But by and large, uh, I don't think there any of the other co-ops in Madison have had uh, any significant uh, events. So are there activities that you're that you like that you don't do or that are you know that as a group you've decided you know like if you you know are going into you know you're going grocery shopping or i don't know like you're going to some kind of you know i mean I'm, you know grocery shopping I'm, I'm sure is that's part of you know just everyday life but if you do an activity that's a little bit riskier or unusual like how do you deal with that like do you like disclose that to the rest of the group or like have you just you know are there certain things that the that the household has decided like you know definitely you know like no traveling for example or like have you have you have you made any of those choices or you're just kind of dealing with you know case by case situation well we've set norms around um about normal activities like going to the grocery store like we expect whoever went to the grocery store to have worn a mask and uh washed their hands when they came back from the grocery store uh we think that you know that's that's pretty normal we're now uh more and more aware of how COVID is spread and so i think we're we're, we're pretty comfortable with uh, our, our grocery shopper going and doing that we also we also have a shared food plan so we have like a person who is doing all the grocery shopping so it's kind of more single point of contact or actually it's not a, a single person, it's a group of people who are who are doing that right now. But uh, if a member were to say that they wanted to you know, visit their grandmother or uh, right now we have a member who is traveling and uh, that's not a normal activity, um, they're, they're doing interstate travel. And so our decision was that when they come back, they're going to quarantine um, for the requisite uh, period and they're going to get a test once they've been back and quarantined for a couple of days to just ensure that we know what our risk factors are going to be and that they are aware of kind of like what our expectations are. And we set that up ahead of time. So when someone is quarantining, are, are you cooking for them? You know, like you're, is someone taking over their, their tasks and, and their responsibilities for, for the quarantine period of time? Uh, it will depend on the tasks. Um, that they're that they're doing if they have to just you know if they're doing our finances like they could usually do that from the room but uh, but like when they're quarantining yes we'll uh, we'll help them get food uh, if that's necessary if they want to use the kitchen they still can but 
we ask that they let us know that they're going to do that, give us a little heads up so that people can be out of the kitchen space and then let them uh, let them use it and then let us know when they're done um, and that they you know clean them after themselves. So we've we've figured out kind of work workarounds to make their uh, their non-contact a little bit more uh, feasible in a space like this. Yeah, so that they're not like stuck in their room for for two weeks without uh, right yeah you know yeah setting foot outside so you you were mentioning that there's a few people that are going grocery shopping so you I imagine that then there's another small group that does the cooking and like so how how do you do the meal times um we have fewer meals than i think most um, co-op organizations in Madison do. Um, we we have just a, a single weekly shared meal that we normally have. Oh, okay. Um, and and then um, uh, we just rotate through the people who are uh, here in the house who will cook that meal. We try to have kind of uh, house meeting and or discussion time at that same uh, meal time in order to kind of keep us grounded in uh, the collective effort that is uh, operating and making this community. But we also recognize it's COVID. And so eating all in the same room is kind of not really the, the best way for us to, to uh, establish reasonable social distancing. Um, so we're fortunate to have a, a larger um, like living room, dining room, kitchen, uh, open space. Um, and so people can separate themselves apart from each other um, if they want to eat in eyeshot of each other or they'll uh, eat, eat separately and, and like we'll, come back in and talk with folks while they're uh, while they're masked in the space. Okay. So you mentioned that there was quite a few other housing co-ops in in Madison. Are you are you part of a network? Are you connected with with those co-ops? Uh, we're not part of a formal network with those co-ops. We're aware of them. Um, a large number of the members of this co-op have lived in other co-ops in Madison, but we're we're not formally um, affiliated with them. Okay. So let's talk about your work with with NASCO, the North American Students for Cooperation. So you're, uh, you work in development, uh, helping co-ops in expanding um, and other real estate projects. So um, so tell us a little bit about, about your work. Yeah, so NASCO focuses on uh, group equity and cooperative housing. Um, so that's um, housing co-ops where the members have a voting stake, but they don't have uh, an equity share in the co-op, uh, and that all of the equity is held by the, the co-op organization itself. This is a little bit different than the uh, market rate or limited equity co-ops that uh, folks will, will see. Uh, and, you know, we, we partner with uh, other organizations that support those co-ops. We focus on group equity. We have uh, member co-op organizations. Uh, so we're a, we're a, a membership organization of individual co-ops and uh, those co-ops uh, are in the United States and Canada and they collectively uh, have uh, over 4,000 individual human members and uh, that are members of NASCO and we provide training for those co-ops. Uh, we provide technical assistance for them um, if they're trying to redo their finances or uh, do a development project and we have a, an annual conference that we provide uh, for our members. And this past year, we just kicked off a, a leadership program where we're taking a, a cohort of uh, individual members uh, from co-ops and training them on 
cooperative leadership principles and practices that they'll be able to then bring back to their uh, their home co-ops after this uh, year-long program. Uh, and we're really excited to do that. My, my role with NASCO is uh, I'm our director of development services. So I'll, I focus on the on uh, real estate development and acquisition, um, as well as any kind of major like refinances um, or significant work that either improves the, the co-ops physically, improves their fi- standing financially, or, or stabilizes them uh, so that they'll be able to develop in the future. And just to clarify, so NASCO, uh, NASCO's members, are they all uh, student housing co-ops or are there some non-student housing co-ops that, that are members as well? There are a mix of student housing co-ops and non-student housing co-ops. By population, there are about 50-50 students and non-students that are members of NASCO. But the actual co-op organizations, there's there are more organizations that are not student-specific than there are student-specific organizations that are members of NASCO. Oh, I see. Okay. So the member co-ops are, you know, so when, so when they're like refinancing or wanting to, to develop are, so they, they, they come to you for technical advice. Um, So like in terms of refinancing, like, are you dealing with specific, you know, like finance uh, co-ops or credit unions, or is each individual co-op dealing with with their own you know like their with their own financial institution that that'll depend kind of on the project uh so like if a if a co-op's trying to to refinance it may be most larger well-established cooperative organizations can kind of refinance by themselves they're usually perfectly capable of doing that um, without technical assistance however some co-op organizations either were set up at one point and now have all new membership or had been set up under some kind of complex financial scheme that the initial like uh, incorporators figured out and now they're at the they're like at their five-year balloon time and they need to figure out what to do really quickly um and uh the and maybe the members like never engaged in cooperative finance before and they don't know what's going on that's kind of where we uh best fit in um and we try to work with cooperative community development financial institutions so either like our cdfis or or credit unions or uh, nonprofit lending institutions um, that will be able to support um, our, our co-op members long-term um, because it can be really hard to, to get financing for a co-op uh, through t- traditional channels. Um, a lot of lending institutions don't understand what you're setting up and especially in the group equities where they'll, they'll ask, but who, who actually you know, runs this corporation? Is it the, the, the renters? Like, like how, how, do, how do you have controls in this situation? So often um, lenders will just kind of out of hand say, nah, go somewhere else uh, because it doesn't fit in our boxes. And we've worked pretty hard to develop relationships with a lot of other uh, lending institutions that help streamline that process uh, for our members and for our potential members. And does NASCO own any any property or like any any equity in in any housing co-ops, or it's strictly like a member-based organization? NASCO Properties does own uh, own buildings, and that operates kind of like a, a co-op of co-ops, where an individual co-op organization in a in say Texas that owns two buildings can join NASCO Properties and, uh, and uh, by joining NASCO Properties, NASCO Properties then owns the equity in the building and also owns buildings in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. And so now can uh, kind of equity balance uh, between those two organizations if one of them has a, 
uh, a major uh, capital expense, or uh, if one of them wants to uh, develop, they can uh, borrow against the equity in the other organizations. And so uh, that's been a really powerful vehicle for NASCO to be able to do uh, co-op housing development. So how, how many holdings does the NASCO properties have? I believe we're at 16 right now. Um, just uh, swapped a building uh, in Providence for two buildings in Providence. So, yeah. And is your is your housing co-op like a an entity of its own, or I, th I think you mentioned earlier that it was part of a community land trust? The co-op that I live in um, is an entity by itself. It is called Yahara Cooperative Land Trust. But as, as after I had moved in, I realized that the way that this had been incorporated was, uh, and the way that we'd been operating the, the co-op were not really aligned. The original uh, organization was designed to be, a, to be actually a cooperative land trust. Since 1973, it's just held this one uh, and hasn't really done anything with that. So we've spent a bunch of time in the past couple of months kind of changing some of our policies to allow for our, for us to potentially own um, more properties. But uh, I think since 1973, the, the members turnover kind of missed that. They went uh, out of line with what kind of the original uh, multi-house intent was. Oh, okay. So are there, are there plans to eventually down the road to, to look at uh expanding and and buying more properties or some more land there aren't specific plans right now um for yclt to purchase a, a an additional building um i think right now we're just kind of getting our ducks in a row um to to prepare for something like that and to prepare for um the organization to be able to meet its capital needs longer term uh, but we're keeping our eyes open i'm keeping my eyes open because i think that it would be really great for us to be able to uh, have a, a more, uh, uh, to have a wider footprint of uh, permanently affordable housing in Madison. Mm -hmm. And you use the equity in, in your current property to, you know, to leverage financing and, and, and provide more affordable housing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that pretty much covers everything. Is there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to to share with us about living in Yahara, Yohara, uh, Yahara Cooperative Land Trust. Yeah, and what what does that mean? Uh, Yahara. So there's a there's a river um, uh, right near us, which is the um, Yahara River, um, and so we're in, we're in that neighborhood. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So nice to be near the Yahara River. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, if there's any like, uh, I mean, so you've been there for not quite a year. What, um, like, how has it been, you know, since since May of 2020 to to live in your housing co-op for you and your partner and your and your baby? What does your baby think? <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell, they seem to like it. They uh, they really enjoy wandering around and having a much larger space than I think they otherwise would have. Um, and a lot more to look at. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if uh, the sense of scale really matters too much, but um, our, our uh, individual room unit uh, is uh, about $400 per month US. And we 
you know, we have access to the, the rest of the house. So there's common spaces on the first, second and third floors of the house. We have a greenhouse, we have a backyard for, you know, in a pretty nice neighborhood. And, and we get every, every Sunday, somebody makes us dinner. So pretty good deal. It's a pretty solid deal. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think they have, uh, they're going to have a, a really good opportunity to, to learn so much from all of the other people that are going to be with them and to see so much that they, I think, really wouldn't get a chance to see if they were kind of just living with us in a studio apartment or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagine you've had to baby proof the, the house somewhat. You have baby gates on all the stairs or how? Uh, not yet. They're, they're still immobile, but the, the baby gates have come in. Um, yeah. <laughs> You'll you'll be busy with the screwdriver putting those in. Yeah, uh, and the house has had babies before, so it's um, so like it's nice that we're we're like aware of where to put the stuff. <laughs> you can you can see the holes in the, in the wood already. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Nice, yeah. Well, thanks, Brel, for joining us today and taking some time out of your your busy schedule. I'm sure and. Uh, and creating, uh, you know, painting a picture of living in uh, Yahara Housing Co-op in Madison. So yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us. Have a great day, and uh, good luck with uh, with everything, and uh, and happy parenting yeah. in the co-op. I yeah, I really appreciate taking the time. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Co-op Conversations. We hope that it provided a better understanding of what life is like in a housing co-op. If you're interested in finding out more, you can visit us at housinginternational.coop. We feature many stories and resources on our website with useful tools, studies, and articles on topics ranging from governance to finance to sustainability and so on. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram where we like to share stories and good practices of co-op housing around the world. If you want to find a housing co-op in your region, I suggest that you do an online search for co-op housing along with the name of your city and hopefully something will come up. I would like to thank all of our guests for sharing their stories with us. I would also like to thank our sound technician, Todd LeBlanc, who also lives in a housing co-op in Vancouver, Canada. Thanks for listening.